You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Brian Feraldi, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I knew nothing about the stock market. I'd received a few paychecks, and my mom suggested contributing to a Roth IRA. What did I know about stocks? I knew that I was utterly impressed with the assisted living community that my grandmother had just moved into. They were a public company. Why not? Doesn't everyone say you should invest in what you know about? Well, I didn't know anything about this company. Earnings, growth potential, market share, nothing. Is it surprising my Roth balance was flat for more than a decade? It only started to multiply when I sold that stock and put the money into an S&P 500 index. My guest today just wrote a book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? Everything You Should Have Been Taught About Investing in School But Weren't. So why didn't my stock go up? Brian Feraldi has an intense interest in money, personal finance, and investing, which eventually led to becoming a writer at The Motley Fool in 2015. Not only has he written thousands of articles, appeared on hundreds of videos and podcasts, but has also been hosting a members-only Zoom session entitled Fool Live that has helped investors weather the financial uncertainty during the COVID pandemic. His book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up?, has already been released on April 5th. Brian, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Let me ask a basic, simple question. Do you really need to fully understand the stock market to benefit from it? The answer there is no. And there's lots of proof that you don't need to know. Witness all of the people that have been diligently putting money into their 401k for decades and are now smiling whenever they look at their uh, retirement balance. However, I can just speak for myself. When I first encountered the stock market, I saw all the same charts and graphs that everybody looks at when they're new. And if you look back at the 150 plus year history of uh, the stock market in the US, you just see this line that endlessly goes from the <laughs> bottom left uh, to, the, to the upper right. And it's really a thing of, of beauty. And if, if, if that's all you knew and you just said to yourself, I think that's going to keep happening, that's all you need to know to do well in, in the stock market over time. However, I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to know the engineering, the why behind things, and it just never made 
any sense to me at all how there was this magical thing called the US stock market. And for reasons that were never explained to me, it continually defies the laws of gravity and has just gone up and up and up about 10% per year for almost 200 years now. And personally, I was like, okay, I see this happening, but why? Why does this thing go up? And the, the truth is, Today in America, there's about 100 million people that are betting their retirement on the stock market continuing to go up. They could be doing so directly by owning shares in an index fund. They could be doing so by participating in a 401k or even indirectly through a pension fund. So 100 million people are counting on the stock market to continue going up in order for them to live the retirement life they, they want. And I have zero data to back up this up, but I just know from talking to people that 99% of them don't know why the stock market goes up over time. And I should know because I myself was in that vast majority of people when I first started. So once you understand the why, the the driving forces behind what actually moves the stock market higher over time, you can just invest with a level of clarity and confidence that you couldn't otherwise. Now, you're a graphs and tables kind of guy, right? You get into the details for The Motley Fool. You're quite sophisticated in your investing. Was it hard for you to go back and kind of explore the 101 of the stock market? I mean, this is a little bit different than what you normally talk about on your platforms about finances. In many ways, it wasn't because I... I lived through. I've been I've been investing for eighteen uh, plus years now, and I vividly remember all of the questions that I have learned along the way as I've learned more and more about investing. Now, to your point, I I am. I love investing. I love the stock market. It's I enjoy digging into the details about companies. 99% of people, humanity, do not enjoy the stock market. And for them, it would be so painful to read through a company's annual report or earnings report. Like that just turns, turns them off. That kind of thing just naturally interests me for, for whatever reason. I, I don't even know why. Uh, however, I, I vividly remember the journey that I went on from, from the beginning to where I am now with having these questions in my head. And I, I'm the type of person that once I learn something, once I learn the details of it, I get a kick out of asking myself, how would I explain this concept that I now understand to my former self? Or asking myself, what do I wish I knew when I, I first started? So that was really the mindset that I tried to be in the entire time that I was researching the book. You mentioned kind of going back to the beginning of your journey. Tell us about that journey. How did you get interested in the stock market in the first place? And tell us about some of those early mistakes. Sure. So first off, I was a business major in college, and that was just because I had no idea what I wanted to do uh, with my life. And it seemed like business was a broad enough category that made sense. And despite having a business concentration in school, when I graduated college, I still had no clue how the stock market worked, what a stock was, why they went up and down uh, each day, et cetera. And again, I was a business major right if there's if there's one category that should have known that stuff uh, that would be the, the the major but i 
I mostly in college went to college because it was the thing that you were expected to do. And I think a lot of people do that same thing. I learned so much about myself in college, but academically, it wasn't really a boon for me personally. However, when I graduated, my dad handed me a copy of, uh, of Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And I, there are many, many flaws with, uh, with that type <laughs> of book, and I fully acknowledge all of them. However, that was it's, it's been referred to a, a gateway drug uh, for getting into finance and stocks and investing, and that's absolutely what it was for me. And that was the first time I'd ever read anything that explained basic concepts that we love in the five community, right? Everyone's in business for themselves. You can become a uh, oh, wealthy. Think like an owner. Think like an entrepreneur. Buy assets, right? And, and that just mindset just immediately grabbed me and pulled me in. And it just kicked off this never-ending thirst for knowledge about money and personal finance and, and investing. Now, with that basic, basic information, I dove headfirst into, into the market. And the first thing that attracted to me uh, about the stock market was penny stocks, right? You, you, buy, you buy a stock for a dollar, you sell that same stock for $2. And since it's only a dollar, right, it, it, it's going to quickly be able to go to $2. I didn't know anything about financial statements, a balance sheet, a management team, a business model, a competitive advantage, nothing. The only thing I knew was that these stocks were trading under $5, period. End of research, right? And as you can imagine, I did terribly, <laughs> just <laughs> awfully, because I had no idea what I was, what I was doing. And at the time, I was taking these losses that were in the, in, measured in the few hundreds of dollars, and they felt awful. It just hurt so bad to take my hard-earned money, put it in the market, and then lose it in short order. Uh, however, I learned so much about what not to do early on by making those mistakes that I consider those losses the best tuition I've ever paid. Yeah. You know, you make the point in the book, they're penny stocks for a reason. And the reason is the likelihood you're going to succeed or the businesses are going to succeed is pretty small. Yeah, that's correct. And and more importantly, this this was never explained to me. The share price, the actual dollar price that a stock trades for tells you absolutely nothing uh, about the business. Apple, for example, if Apple's management team and board woke up tomorrow and said, we want our stock to trade for $3, they could do that. They could split their stock 100 or 200 or whatever the number is for one, and their stock would immediately go from $300 to $3 per share. Conversely, if a stock was trading at $1 and they woke up and said, we want to be a $100 stock, they could do a reverse stock split and make their stock price whatever they want. However, that is not something, one, that people know and un understand. And two, it's so counterintuitive to how we think as humans, right? You go to a grocery store, uh, you see uh, one, some, some apples for a, a dollar a pound and some other apples for $10 per pound. You know, okay, these are the cheap ones. These are the expensive ones. It doesn't work that way in the stock market. The price of one share literally tells you nothing about uh, the company, but it makes complete sense why so many people, myself included, look initially at the price and try to make decisions. It's one of the key points of your book, 
why does the stock market go up? You get into all the detail and the nitty gritty. There's so much great information in the book. I'm going to bypass most of that because I'm going to assume that our listeners are going to go and read and find out all this great detailed information. I want to talk big picture about some of the book's bigger points. We've heard the name of the book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? I have a different question. Why does the stock market crash? Yeah, this is something that, again, just confused the heck out of me. And it's one sad thing about uh, the way that most people interact with the market or get to know the market is through the mainstream media. And when is the stock market the front page of the newspaper or the news story? When? When the worst possible time, right? When it's at, when it's when it's free falling, when it's when it's uh, when it's crashing. And again, what's the only information that most people get about the stock market? Price, price. What is happening in the with the Dow, the S and P five hundred, the Nasdaq today? That that information we have, and if it's going down, which is when most people interact with the stock market, it's that they get exposure to the stock market when it crashes. Now, the stock market, if you look back at uh, the long-term history of the, of the stock market, the stock market goes through uh, cycles. It goes through bull markets when, generally speaking, prices are, are rising over time, and it goes through bear markets when prices are falling rapidly over time. And just in my investing lifetime, or when I've been aware of what the stock market is, I, I saw the COVID-inspired crash of, of February and March of, of 2020. I invested through the Great Recession, which was the 2008 financial crisis. And I at least was aware of what was happening in the stock market during the dot-com crash and then the, the, uh, the 9-11 terrorist attack. So in my lifetime, I've seen the stock market crash on three separate uh, occasions. And every time in, two, in 2000 and 2008, when I was still learning about the stock market, I, I thought to myself when it was crashing, well, that's it. Like capitalism <laughs> done. is done. We had we had a great run. We had a great run, but it's over, right? It's it's over. Unemployment is 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 skyrocketing. Stock prices are 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 falling. That's it. It, it it's done. And in many cases, when you look back at the history of the crash, there's there's always some underlying cause that that causes broad-based sentiment in the stock market to change. Investors as a group go from becoming too excited, which is when stock markets reach their highs, to becoming very fearful. And when they become fearful, the natural thing to want to do is to exit the market, to pull your money out. That causes prices to decline. That induces more fear, which causes more people to want to pull their money out. Prices fall further, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Human emotions take over. The herd mentality kicks in and prices fall rapidly and drastically. So that is mostly why stock markets crash. It's a massive sudden change in sentiment amongst participants in the market from being very bullish or optimistic about the future to being very bearish. And when that happens, prices follow suit. But let me interrupt you here because we're talking sentiment, which is emotion. I mean, doesn't the stock market, isn't it based on the actual valuation and worth of these companies? I mean, like, how much of this is emotion versus fiscal responsibility and companies that are either really doing well or really doing poorly? Well, it's always a combination uh, of those things. But ben Benjamin Graham has the best quote about the market uh, of all time. In the short term, the market is a voting machine. 
In the long term, the market is a weighing machine. However, we are constantly living through short term after short term after short term. That's how we experience uh, life. And in the short term, the market is a voting machine. What matters most is sentiment. What people think, what the market participants in general think is going to happen to prices, to economic activity, to unemployment, to corporate profits over over the short term. And if they think that market business Business profits are about to to plunge. It's a natural reaction to want to pull your money out of the market before that happens. However, over long periods of time, the thing that drives stock prices is the weighing machine, how corporate profits change over time. So if you look back at the long-term history of the stock market, corporate profits go in one direction, up. Not in a straight line. There are periods when they they fall and they fall drastically and they and they pull back and decline, mostly related to economic activity. But over the long term, corporate profits do do increase. However, stock prices do not follow those corporate profits exactly in the short term. Human emotion gets in and causes when things are going well, prices to exceed far go ahead of the fundamentals, and when things are going not well, prices to crash far below the fun, fundamentals. So those two things are a Hundred percent linked in the long term, but not at all linked in the short term. So corporate profits generally go up, which makes us think in the long term the stock market generally will go up. And yet, every time we have a ripple in the market, you have people who shake their heads. They say this time is different. And when you ask them why, a lot of them point to Japan, and they say, "Well, remember what happened in Japan? Does the market truly always go up?" I mean. Are we missing something here? So that's a f- completely fair question. And if you look at the long-term returns of markets that are not the US market, such as Japan, Japan has been in a sideways or slash bear market now for almost 30, 30 years. Uh, however, during that same time period, the US market has continued to produce its long-term returns and go up about its long-term average, which is roughly, roughly 10% per year all in. So there are factors underlying that do control where stock prices head in in the long term and every market is is different. My book was was 100% focused on the market that I know best which is the US stock market, but it is folly to think that all stock markets always go up over the long term. You have to understand the dri- the drivers of what create make stock prices go up and focus on those for each individual market. So what you're saying is we're better than Japan. <laughs> We're better than Japan, yes. (laughs) I knew that was the answer. Another big picture question. Distill for me a little bit in this book, what do you think is the most dangerous mistake lay people make about the stock market? There are lots of ways to invest. And the sad thing is humans are pre-programmed, right? It's our innate instincts are to do exactly the wrong thing in, in the market, right? We are herd animals and you could talk to any individual person individually and they'll think, no, I can think independently of, of what other people are doing. I can think independently of what other investors are doing. Uh, saying you can do that thing and actually doing that thing are two entirely different. It, it's just so much harder to think long-term and, and go against the crowd than most people uh, think it is up front. So the mistake that I see people uh, making in, in the market is they get in 
or they get interested in the market at the wrong time and they lose interest or get out uh, of the market at exactly the wrong time. And this is a a sad, uh, sad truth. We've seen exactly that thing uh, play out over the last two years in, in, in the stock market. If you just look at the last two years of broadly what's happened, amongst the stock market, a whole bunch of uh, millions upon millions of new investors started to get interested in investing in February, March, and April of 2020, right? That's the time that they were stuck home. They had nothing else to do. And the demand for financial content, financial information just went through the roof. Well, what happened to the stock market from February and March of 2020 till the end of the year? It skyrocketed. So if that was your first experience with the market. What the lesson that you learned immediately was buy any stock, the riskier, the better, and you are instantaneously rewarded for buying uh, that stock. And many people, especially in late 2020, their, their expectations of the market moving forward and their expectations for their returns was, I'm going to earn 20, 25% per year. This is easy. In fact, this year I earned 50% or 60%. <laughs> Therefore, earning 25% per year is easy. If you look what happened uh, to those same investors in 2021, we've seen the exact opposite thing happen, where many growth stocks that were really inflated in 2020 have been horrific investments in 2021. Some of them are down 56%. 60, even 70% uh, from their all-time highs. And if that is your first experience with the market, stocks immediately go up and then stocks immediately go down. Uh, it's natural for your takeaway for that to be the stock market is rigged. The stock market doesn't work. Only suckers get into it. It's all luck. It's all timing, et cetera. Because that was the experience that so many people had as their first exposure the stock market. In fact, one of my favorite business writers, Morgan Housel, points this out regularly. He has this great chart that shows the relationship between what happened to the stock market when you were in your teens and what your asset allocation was for the rest of your life. It showed that uh, people who were in their teens and 20s during the go-go years, the 1950s, they saw stocks just endlessly uh, go up and they became big believers in the stock market for the rest of their life. Conversely, if you were in your teens and, and 20s during the 1970s to the early 1980s, stocks did nothing for, for almost a decade. And in fact, they, they went uh, down very often. And that leaves an impression on you for the rest of your life, where you form your opinion about what happens in the stock market, essentially when you're paying attention to it. So people overly focus on their, their experiences and what they've seen in the market over short periods of time. And the sad thing is short periods of time in the market is like five years. That's a short period of time. But in, in real time, five years is a really long time, right? The feedback mechanism that the stock market provides on what what decisions you make and the impact of those decisions can often be years uh, apart. So if you don't if so the mistake that investors make is they they get into the market, they try it for a short period of time, and whatever experience they have shapes the rest of uh, their life. So their expectations are either too high or or too low. I would say that's the biggest mistake that I see people making. Yeah, in your answer, I hear two things. One is short-term versus long-term thinking. But the other idea is that we experience this financial trauma throughout our lives, maybe exacerbated by the 24-7 news cycle, which is haranguing us with financial news and changing the way we feel about it. But I, I guess I never thought about how much financial trauma we carry with us, maybe from our teenage years or just other things we've experienced. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know so many people, their their views about money in many ways come from their their personal experiences with money growing up and the views that their that their parents held about money. And many times they carry those same views throughout the rest of their life. So the exact same thing can happen in, in the stock market, right? The way that we interpret what's happening in the stock market is very much based on our firsthand experience. And those firsthand experiences can vary wildly just based on the random time period that you became interested in it. We're talking to Brian Ferraldi. His book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? is available now by Choose FI Media. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, Purposeful cockpit-like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to higher education, where students sacrifice $3.8 billion in earnings every year by dropping out, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd is the fastest growing venture capital investment community, and many of our crowd's members have benefited from over 40 IPOs or sale exits of portfolio companies. Now you can invest in EduNav, whose patented technology uses machine learning and combinatorial algorithms to guide every student along the optimal path to graduation. EduNav is used by 20 colleges and universities and helped one college double their graduation rate. Invest today at our crowd. Invest at EduNav at O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. You can join our crowd for free at ourcrowd dot com slash E-A-I. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd dot com slash E-A-I. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Brian Feraldi, who has an intense interest in money, personal finance, and investing which eventually led to becoming a writer at The Motley Fool in 2015. Brian, you did something interesting at the end of this book. You wrote a chapter about advice that you would give to your younger self. And there were just so many kernels of great information there. I wanted to go over some of your points. The first one is that savings is more important than investing do we underestimate the importance of savings? It sounds like it's really easy to get caught up in the stock market and what our returns are, but maybe we're concentrating on the wrong thing. 
Yeah, this is something that I would say I learned more from Mr. Money Mustache than, than anything else. But it's natural. If you're interested in the stock market like I am, it's, it's so natural to, to want to ask yourself, what business should I buy today? What stock is going to go up the most over time? How can I eke out that extra return over my investing time frame? All that kind of stuff is very fun to talk about. But then there's just the, the math. If you have $1,000 in invested and you earn an extra 1% return uh, on your money i mean that amounts to to $10 if you have $100,000 invested and you earn an extra 1% return on your money that's $1000 and if you have a million dollars invested that 1% return is an, is an extra return of $10,000 so it's it's very common for people myself included to want to focus exclusively on what stock is going to go up the most uh, tomorrow and i love that journey however I firmly believe that getting your personal finances in order and in shape and focusing on that is an order of magnitude more important than getting your investing of finances right. And savings is the engine that's going to drive your, your wealth in the long term. So I, I wrote that mostly as a reminder to myself that somebody that saves $1,000 per month is going to be 10 times richer than someone that saves $100 a month, even, even if that person that saves $100 per month outperforms other persons. So savings are the raw material of wealth building. So focus on that. When we talk about investments, we often talk about compounding. Just to make sure everyone understands what that is, can you tell us what compounding is? And you say that it can be either an ally or a bitter foe. Why a bitter foe? So this was something funny when I was writing the book, I was giving out to my, my friends and, and family just to like test out to make sure that the, the words were correct. And I just assumed that everybody knows what compounding is because it's like second nature to me, right? It's something that uh, anybody that I talk to in finance instantaneously knows what it is. And I, I said that to this and, I, and a friend said, I don't know what compounding means. When I hear the word compounding, I think of like boating. And I was like, that's not a connection I would have ever made <laughs> in my life. But to, what, what compounding is, is when the money that you make earns interest or earns a return, and then that money earns a return, and then that money earns a return, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Einstein called compound interest the eighth wonder of a world. And it is the magic thing. It is the reason why people can generate extraordinary wealth off of ordinary savings in, in their lifetime. And I say it's a wonderful ally or a bitter foe because compound interest can work both ways. Uh, you want compound interest to, to be your ally. And the way that you do that is by saving more uh, and investing. And compound interest can be a bitter foe if you do the exact opposite, which is rack up debt and have that debt continually compound on itself. So compound interest is an incredibly powerful force. And I suggest making it your ally. Does making it your ally mean paying off debts before you invest? Or even some people consider paying off their mortgage before they invest. How do you decide where that extra money goes? Yeah, there is a fierce debate about this exact thing in the uh, in the personal finance space. There are people that uh, point out the math of things, and they'll say, "Don't pay off your debts. You can earn a higher return on real estate in uh, in the stock market than you could by paying an interest rate." And mathematically, you're foolish to pay off your debt. Other people say, like myself, are in the camp of, "Well, if you have no debt and you have no interest payment, you're permanently reducing your long term costs." So I am very much in the pay off. Your debt, all your debt camp, mortgage in, included. But even if you don't want to pay off your mortgage, which is perfectly fine, I still suggest eliminating all of all, all of your other debt before you really start investing. 
However, as it's been point, uh, pointed out, the really important thing is that you are using your capital to enhance your wealth. And you can do that by investing, or you can do that by paying down your, your debt. So it's one of those things that they're both great choices. And which one you choose to go for is really speaks about your personality and your personal risk profile more than anything else. When you're giving advice to yourself in that last chapter, you remind yourself that there is a myth out there that investing is just for the rich. And I think a lot of people connect to this, right? Because I've heard people say this over and over again, I don't have enough money to invest. Is that true? Years ago, investing was quote unquote for the rich. And that was because it was so much more expensive and it was so much more difficult to buy and, and sell. One of the biggest gifts that investors have been given over the last 30, 40 years is commissions have collapsed so much so that you can now buy and sell securities for $0. I mean, that's amazing. When I first started, it cost me $7 to place any buy or sell order. And even that was like a gift because years ago, the cost used to be $50, $100, $150 just to place a trade. You can imagine how much that would pull down your return, especially when you're working with small amounts of money. So I think years ago, it was far, far, far harder for the average person to invest in the stock market. But today you can literally invest with a with dollar or two dollars per, per month. You can you can buy and sell securities for zero dollars up front. And you can invest continuously into great funds with very little money. So investing it used to be much harder for the average person to access investing, but investing is no longer only for the rich. Yeah. And I would imagine the rise of the 401k has changed things quite a bit too, because your average employee now has access and maybe even a match for a 401k. So it behooves everyone to know about the stock market now. Oh, c- completely. Yep. 401ks have been such a boon for uh, Americans and an easy way for them to dollar cost average and get into, into the market. So yeah, it's so much easier to invest nowadays than it has ever been. There is a concept called analysis paralysis, and we see this often in new investors. What should we be watching out for? I'm the type of person that likes to know all the information or something before I would get in. And I know a lot of people constantly search for more information and more information before they take that first step. And it's very common for, for some people to continually look for this magical signal that tells them, okay, I'm ready. Finally, it's time to do it before they take action. But so many people get caught in analysis paralysis. Well, that perfect time to start investing never happens. And if you pay attention to the news or, or anything, it always seems like there's something massive going on in the world to worry about. So that was just a reminder to myself that you'll never have perfect information, but the most important thing is that you get that compounding working in your favor and just start putting money uh, into index funds on a regular basis, and you will do great over long periods of time. Before the break, we were talking about the timing of when you get into the market, right? A lot of people, depending on when you got into the market, your feelings about how your investments are doing can vary. You say there is no perfect time to invest. What does that mean exactly? Well, believe it or not, the perfect time to invest is when it seems like it's the absolute worst time to invest. I mean, the biggest buying opportunity in my lifetime was March of 2009, which is when the market was plunging, layoffs were skyrocketing, the economic data was horrific, the government was racking up deficits, and 
Everything was, was like every headline you could possibly imagine was negative and bad and terrible. And yet that was quote unquote, the perfect time to, to invest. But more, more broadly speaking, the strategy that I recommend uh, in, in the book and the strategy that everybody that I, I know recommends is dollar cost average into index funds over a period of decades. And you are highly, highly likely to do very, very well over time. And it's far more important to get that process going than it is to pick the perfect time to start investing. And you just have to know going in that when you start investing, the market is going to do random things over the over the first few years. And Believe it or not, once you start that process, you should be rooting for the stock market to go down. You should get excited when the stock market goes down because that means you're buying at better and better valuations uh, over time. And that means that your future returns will actually be be higher over time. But broadly speaking, people, some people just want to wait. Same thing with analysis paralysis. They're waiting for the perfect time to get investing. The perfect time to start investing is always right now if your time horizon is measured in decades. Talk about the difference between timing the market and time in the market. I hear people say those terms quite a bit, but give us a little more detail. Yeah, it's very natural to want to time the market. And if you look back at the at the last, say, 30 years or the lifetime of the market, in uh, what the market has done in your lifetime, and you look at a chart, it's it, timing the market seems easy. Right? You just okay. Okay, I, I, I buy. <laughs> you should have bought right here. Yeah. <laughs> I buy in 1982. I sell in 2000. I buy in 2002. I sell in 2007. I buy in 2009. I sell in 2020. I buy in March 2020. I, it looks so easy to time the market when you're working backwards with perfect information. But timing the market is incredibly hard to do in in real time. And the only way that I figured this one out was by actually trying to do it. My myself again. I'm somebody that pays a lot of attention to the to the stock market, to valuations, all those kind of things. And if you were to ask me when the market was when at its peak price, I would have said 2017. Like in 2017, I literally thought to myself, uh, the market is caught up so much over the last uh, nine years. Valuations are so high that I think the market is at a top. Now, thankfully, I did not act on that instinct. Uh, however, I did think of that instinct. And how wrong was I? I mean, the stock market was up like 100% uh, since I thought the market was at a peak price. And more importantly, if you look at the, the, the news, you can be sure in any given, any given year, some guru somewhere is going to be saying something scary, like the market's at an all-time high, the crash is right around the quarter. And they say that again and again and again and again eventually they will be right. But if you actually try and time the market in, in, in real time, looking forward, it's just so much harder. It's, it's basically impossible. So the good news is you don't have to worry about trying to time the market. In fact, I think if you dollar cost average, which just means investing the same amount of money, every paycheck or every month, every period that you, you choose, dollar cost averaging makes market timing completely irrelevant. Now, you've become known as an expert stock picker, yet part of your advice to your younger self is that you don't need to pick your own stocks. Why the contradiction? So that advice is more to the vast majority of humanity. So I think that almost everybody, everybody can, can, can become 
can do well for themselves financially by investing in the, in the stock market. However, if you have no interest in business, uh, in finance, in investing, in stock picking, you can still do incredibly well in the stock market by just buying index funds and dollar cost averaging. Like that's all you need to do for your life to do to do very well over time. However, I am one of those weird people that gets enjoyment about the the process of researching businesses, trying to buy them and trying to outperform the the market. But I don't claim that that's the right strategy for everybody. In fact, I only think that's the quote unquote right strategy for about 1% uh, of of humanity, the people that are actually interested in in, in doing so. So for 99% of people, I think index funds and dollar cost averaging is all they need. Now, we know from experience that there's tons of Wall Street fund managers who year after year actually don't beat the market. You argue that as an individual investor, our biggest edge over Wall Street is patience. What do you mean by that? When you are managing your money, you are never going to fire yourself. You are, <laughs> you're not going to, you're not going to say that's it. You're, you're, you're fired based on your performance. That's not the case when you are managing somebody else's money. That person that you're managing that money for, they can fire you at any time and they can pull their their capital away from you. So people that are managing other people's money are not managing their own capital and not managing their own decisions. They're managing somebody else's money and they're managing somebody else's decisions. And if you look at the incentives that are in place, fund managers don't make money. Most of them don't make money by outperforming the market. They make money by gathering more assets. So what they're really trying to do is to get more people to invest in their fund. Now, one way that you do that is by outperforming the market. But broadly speaking, a fund that that has $10 million in in asset will literally earn 10 times the fees of a fund that has $1 million uh, in asset. So the, the name of that game of managing somebody else's money is asset gathering, not necessarily outperformance. You as an individual investor have none of those distractions in place, none of those biases in place, and you are just managing your own capital and that capital is permanent. Believe it or not, that is a massive, massive advantage that you have over professional investors. And for that reason, you can invest truly with a long-term time horizon because you don't have any career risk. You don't have any risk of somebody claiming redemptions on you. That sounds like a very small differentiation between professional money managers and individual money managers. But I think that's the biggest reason that individual investors can outperform the market uh, over time. So in summary, we've been talking about how the stock market works and why you should get involved with the stock market. Brian, tell me, is there a version of financial stability you see in which someone does not put some of their asset allocation in stocks? I mean, could you look and say, you know what, this just isn't my thing and still be financially okay? Of course. The stock market is one of several asset classes that you can invest in. The long-term data to me clearly shows it's the one that produces the highest long-term returns, but the fee for getting those high returns is volatility. And some people have no ability or no, no ability to mentally handle or accept that volatility that comes along with it. For that reason, stocks are not the right assets class for, for, for some people. For those people, they might do better 
by investing in real estate. They might be the type of people that just need the stability of investing in bonds. Now, they by investing in those asset classes, you are you are exchanging stability of price for long-term returns. But for many people, that is the right, uh, that's the acceptable trade-off to make because they just can't handle the volatility that comes from stocks. Speaking of volatility, basically everyone and their brother and sister nowadays is saying that we should expect fairly low returns over the next decade. Why is everybody so pessimistic? You even said it yourself. I mean, look, when we look at a graph of returns over time, it's almost a straight kind of line up. Why so much negativity lately? Broadly speaking, the market moves in cycles. During There are long periods of uh, bull markets, and then there are often uh, periods of sideways markets or, or bear markets. Sideways markets means that prices aren't going up. And again, in my lifetime, if you look at what happened to stock prices between 2000 and 2010, they were basically flat for a decade. And during that decade, you had to go through two huge bear markets, the 2001-2002 bear market and the 2008 financial financial crisis. Now, preceding that period was the 1990s and 1980s during which stock prices went up hugely. And if you study if you study the long-term history of markets, it's it's natural it's it's common for for good times to be followed by bad times and for bad times to be followed by good times. Now, I make no claim on on, on predicting what's going to happen to the stock market broadly over the next 10 years, but if you told me the year was 2030 and stock prices were Roughly where they are today, or maybe the long term returns were only one, two, three, four, five percent. I would say that that would make uh, sense. Conversely, if you told me that stock prices were up 10%, uh, 11%, that would surprise me that they were uh, that uh, high. So I understand why there's broad pessimism given what's happened to the stock market over the last 13, 14 years, but I, I, I wouldn't change anything that I'm doing based on that. Yeah, that, that's an important part. So what you're saying is the pessimism might be warranted, but it wouldn't necessarily tell you to change investor behavior at this point. Yeah, it depends on your investing horizon, right? I'm I'm investing for decades, right? And I want my capital continually put into the market for 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 decades to come. So if stock prices didn't move or if they went down, that would be a wonderful long-term period for me to accumulate shares of stock. And then I would expect after that, so long as all the underlying growth drivers of the uh, the economy are still in place, that that would that patience would eventually be rewarded with with superior long-term returns. So. I'm not going to change anything that I'm doing, but broadly speaking, if you were to tell me that the next 10 years returns were lower than they have been over the last 10 years, that wouldn't surprise me. And the other side of that is if you were not looking at decades, let's say you were past retirement and felt like you had a more limited amount of time, then your asset allocation in the first place should be much more conservative, whether that be bonds or tips or whatever it is that you feel is balancing out a portfolio, your asset allocation should reflect that regardless of the ups and downs in the market today. Yeah, for sure. You have to know, well, one thing to ask when you're investing is, all right, when do I need this money? Well, when, when, when am I going to need to spend this money for whatever purpose I'm investing uh, it for? If the answer to that question is in less than five years, the stock market is not the place to put that, that capital. That should be put into boring, predictable instruments like bonds, like CDs, like cash. Even if the period is going to feature some uh, high inflation, which is what we're seeing right now, your purchasing power might go down over that time, but you won't be assuming the, uh, the risk that comes with the volatility risk that comes with investing in the stock market. Because of this possible 
pessimism in the market over the next 10 years. We hear a lot of talk about alternatives and cryptocurrency and those kind of things. It seems like there's some parallel markets that are growing together next to the stock market. Do you ever worry that those new alternative markets are going to affect the viability of the stock market itself or change the way the stock market works? That's always a, possi- a possibility. It's, it's possible that a whole, the next generation of investors might say, I'm going to put my capital into crypto and avoid uh, the stock market. And that might impact the, ma- the stock market at a, a macro level uh, a little bit. But uh, fundamentally, I'm a big believer in the, the power of, uh, of business and the, the long-term viability of, of corporate, pro- corporate profits. And if corporate profits continue to do what, what I hope that they're, that what they've done for 200 years, I'm very confident that still investing in the stock market will be the right thing to do. Well, Brian, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. Your book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up, was really refreshing for someone, especially like me, who feels like they know the basics of the stock market, but it was a good refresher to get back and make sure that I had all of the different knowledge covered. And I think it's a really great read for someone who is just entering the stock market, a young person, someone who wants to start buying equities, but doesn't understand how they work. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you, what is up next in your life? And if people want to reach out to you, how can they on social media, first and foremost, what's going on with you over the next few months? Well, the next few months for me are going to be all about my book and uh, promoting my book and appearing on wonderful podcasts uh, like this one. So that's what's what's next for me. Beyond that, I spend most of my hours these days working on my uh, YouTube uh, channel, which teaches people how to uh, invest in, in the stock market. So that's, that's a good place to uh, connect with me. And that's just my name, which is Brian Feraldi. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Brian Feraldi. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. Just a little update on our ground team. The ground team is a chance for you, an Earn and Invest listener, to become part of my team for my book launch of Taking Stock. That's going to be during the first week of August. We already have almost 100 participants. If you sign up to be part of the ground team, you are going to get extra video You're going to get snapshots into the book early, and you're going to get other content and blogs. Become part of this community. Help me get this book out. Again, we're starting early because the ground team needs to be in place by early August. I hope you check it out. Just go to earnandinvest.com, and right up at the top of the page, there'll be a place for you to learn more about the ground team. Come become part of the Earn and Invest and Taking Stock team. Thanks for listening. Perfect. Awesome. So did we cover from the book the things you wanted to cover? Do you feel like we gave it kind of a a good enough first look and get people interested? Yep. I I had zero expectations and I I wouldn't care if we talked about the book or not. I just care that you mentioned it at some point. So yeah, uh, I think as usual, you did a fantastic job. You asked great questions. Thanks. Was there any any big parts of the book like you want to make sure that are mentioned or that we talk about? No, I mean, the, the whole point of this is to get people to 
click over to Amazon and then they'll do the thing that they normally do, which is look at the table of contents and <laughs> decide, look at the reviews and see if that's worth, uh, if it's worth buying or not. So yeah, no. Um, and when I was talking with MK, she was like, uh, when you go on podcasts, I've always found it annoying when authors say, well, as I talk about in the book, well, as I talk yeah. about in the book. So uh, I try and avoid that kind of thing, which I think is good and good advice. Um, so yeah, I, I I'm I'm happy to go wherever the host wants to go. Basically, I have no expectations other than I would be great if you could say I wrote a book at some point. Brian, the problem is you have so many good things to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks again for coming on. Um, yeah, and I will we'll figure out when exactly to drop it. Like I said, doesn't matter to me. You care about your money, of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.